Come to John chapter 3. What a wonderful chapter it is. If you have a Bible, please open there. There are printed outlines in the bulletin. Uh, There are full printed messages at both exits and online. uh, And uh, the audio messages online as well. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 of John chapter 3. And... uh, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. One of the greatest lies that Satan has foisted on the human race is the lie that religion can save you. Now, by religion, I mean adherence to the beliefs and the practices of a religion in the hopes that what you do, your performance will gain you eternal life, will gain you right standing with God. Of course, we immediately think of things like Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam and even Judaism, some forms of Christianity that we know are very works-oriented, but my concern is there are, may I say it, this is tragic and shocking, there are Baptists who are trusting their religion to get into heaven. They think that by coming to church and doing all the things, somehow it's going to gain them credibility with God, and when judgment comes, the good will outweigh the bad, And they will get into heaven. And it is the greatest mistake in the world to think that. The four Gospels make it clear that the most difficult people to reach with the Gospel are not the uh, wicked tax collectors and prostitutes, immoral people. They're flocking into the kingdom. The most difficult people to reach are the religious crowd. They're the ones that harassed Jesus continually and, of course, finally crucified him. And they were blind to their own sins of pride and self-righteousness. They thought that by being good Jews, that's all that mattered with God. And it was these people that Jesus was continually 
confronting because their religion served not to save them, but to condemn them. Jesus Christ never came to promote religion. You never see him flattering religious people saying, Oh, I'm glad to see that you're religious. I'm a religious man too. Instead, it was always confrontation with those people. When the religious leaders complained that Jesus was socializing too much with the sinners, the notoriously sinful people, uh, he replied in Luke 5, 31 and 32, It's not those who are well that need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, don't mistake, by righteous, he doesn't mean that some are good enough to get into heaven by their own good deeds. He is referring to the self-righteous, to the religious crowd that thought, we're good enough. Jesus said, those aren't the ones. I'm coming to call sinners to repentance. And until the self-righteous recognize they are sinners, there's no salvation for them. Now, in our last study at the end of John chapter 2 there in verses 23 to 25, um, we saw that many believed in Jesus, seeing the signs that he performed, and yet, strangely, Jesus did not believe in them. And I emphasize that we must believe in Jesus in such a way that he believes in us. And I explained that uh, those verses serve as a true, uh, as an introduction to our text here because um, they reflect Nicodemus. There is a connection. You'll notice in verse 24, Jesus was not entrusting himself to them because he knew all men. And then in verse 25, John adds, he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now remember, there are no chapter breaks in the original, so sometimes the chapter breaks cause us to stumble because we separate the content. But the very next verse continues, Now there was a man of the Pharisees. And so John is linking these stories by using that word man repeatedly. In addition... He links the stories because these people in Jerusalem saw Jesus' signs that he was doing. And then we get to the story of Nicodemus, and he says, uh, no one could do the signs that you do unless God is with him. There is another connection. We saw in the last study that Jesus knew all men because he could see into their hearts. He knew what was in the hearts of men. And so we get to the story of Nicodemus and we see that Jesus sees right through his religious veneer and he sees his heart and he knows that Nicodemus lacks eternal life and he needs to be born again. And so Jesus cuts to the quick. We'll see that furthermore, by the way, in chapter 4 when he meets the woman at the well and he sees through her and sees her need. And uh, all through the Gospel of John, Jesus is doing that very thing. But he saw here that Nicodemus needed the new birth. And this encounter with him teaches us that religion can't save you because to enter God's eternal kingdom, you need this new birth that comes by the Holy Spirit. Now, 
the story runs really from verse 1 down to verse 21 of our text, this encounter with Nicodemus. But it's kind of interesting because somewhere after verse 12, Nicodemus just kind of fades, you know, like in a movie where they kind of fade out the background and bring in a new scene. And the rest of it is Jesus commenting on um, this new birth. And then probably... We're not sure, but probably Jesus' direct words end at verse 15. And then verse 16 and following are John's commentary on this incident. Um, But today we can only look down through verse 7. The first thing to note then is that religion can't deal with the fundamental human need. And that need is to be reconciled to the holy God and to enter his kingdom. John begins introducing Nicodemus, telling us he is a Pharisee and uh, that he is a ruler of the Jews. And that means he belonged to what was called the Sanhedrin. This was a body of 71 leaders, Jewish leaders, in Jerusalem, uh, made up of two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees were almost all from the aristocracy, wealthy men, and their, their role was more political than religious. In fact, they held to some very heretical religious views, denying the resurrection from the dead, denying the existence of angels and spirits and that kind of thing. Um, the Pharisees were more middle-class businessmen, and uh, they were concerned about the lack among the people of following the Jewish law. And so they had separated themselves from the common people. And the word Pharisee comes from a a word meaning to separate oneself. They had separated themselves. And then they had added many, many rules and regulations to the Jewish religion in a sincere reform movement mindset. They wanted to uh, rein in the uh, extremes of people and that kind of thing and follow all of these rules and regulations. Now, Nicodemus was apparently a leading Pharisee because when we get down to verse 10, Jesus says, Are you the teacher of Israel? And some of you may have a translation that doesn't have the article, but it is in the original. Nicodemus was apparently a teacher par excellence in the Jewish Sanhedrin. And... uh, a recognized religious authority. Now, John tells us that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, but he doesn't tell us why. And so commentators go all over the charts trying to figure out why. I think perhaps the best guess is that he was afraid of what his fellow Pharisees might think. Remember, Jesus has just cleansed the temple. Not a popular thing to do with these guys. Um, And later in the... The other encounters we have with Nicodemus, we see that he tended to be kind of a fearful man. And um, so he uh, comes to Jesus by night. Some commentators also point out almost all of John's references to night have a spiritual significance to them. You remember later, Judas went out and it was night. You know, and John is saying more than it was dark outside. He was saying this is spiritual darkness. So 
there may well be a connotation here that Nicodemus was in the dark spiritually when he comes to Jesus. He seems to have been impressed by Jesus on some level by the signs he was doing. Um, It was no small thing for a leader of the Sanhedrin to come to an uneducated Galilean carpenter and call him rabbi. That was a term of distinction, uh, normally reserved for those who had been educated in their system, to acknowledge that he had come from God and that the signs that he did were an evidence of that. Um, Nicodemus uses the plural, we know. And it may be that he's kind of hiding behind his colleagues, that he doesn't want to put himself out there and say, I know this. You know, there's a little more safety in the group mindset. And so he says, we know you're a teacher come from God. Um, In spite of his complimentary greetings, of course, Nicodemus falls far short of John's objective in this gospel that you might know that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, so that you might have life in His name. And so, keeping John's purpose in mind at all times, we recognize right away, all right, he's got a nice view of Jesus, but it's not good enough. He doesn't have eternal life. Um, The basic error of the Pharisees, of course, was to externalize religion. They thought that if you kept the rules... You did the thing, that was what counted with God. And they had all these um, man-made regulations they had added to the law of Moses. Jesus blasted them for their hypocrisy, saying, you guys clean the outside of the cup, but you forget the inside. You know, can you imagine just washing the outside of your dishes and the next time you go to uh, drink out of it, eat out of it, there's all this crusty old food in there. Well, Jesus is saying, that's what you guys are like. You clean the outside, but your hearts are not right with God. For example, in Mark chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, Jesus said, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines, the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Now, those who are into religion, of course, always uh, deceive themselves because they think that their outward performance is going to somehow impress God. But God deals with the heart, doesn't he? He sees right through all of the veneer, And he goes for our thought life. He goes for what we are in private when no one else is looking. He desires truth in the innermost being, as David says in Psalm 51. And so that's why religion cannot gain anyone heaven because it's just a veneer. It's just doing the outward motions, going to services, going through all of that externally, but not dealing with the fundamental problem we all have with God, and that is, in our hearts, we are rebels. We have sinned against the holy God. Now, first glance, you might think that Jesus would say, wow, here's a prime convert. I mean, look at this guy. What a strategic 
when it would be to get one of the members of the Sanhedrin, in fact, the teacher of Israel, in my camp. Think of his influence. I mean, think of how his testimony is going to impress the other members of the Sanhedrin. This guy, I mean, it would be better than winning a movie star to Christ in our day and getting him on stage, you know. This guy's got power and influence, and yet it's very instructive to see that Jesus doesn't show any excitement. He doesn't give him any undue deference. He is not even eagerly polite. In fact, you get the impression Jesus isn't really even trying to accommodate or to persuade Nicodemus. He hits him right square between the eyes with what he needs to hear. And he's quick to tell Nicodemus to be reconciled to God you need to be born from above. Verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now the first thing you notice is Jesus answered, but Nicodemus didn't ask a question. (laughs) And uh, one commentator, B.F. Westcott, observes, The Lord answered not his words, but his thoughts. In other words, here's an example. Jesus knows what Nicodemus needs beneath the surface. So Nicodemus comes with all this complimentary talk to Jesus, trying to impress him, you know, and win him over, talk to him as a rabbi to a rabbi. And immediately Jesus asserts himself by putting himself in the driver's seat and saying, you need to be born again. That's your need. Three times in this discourse, verse 3, verse 5, and again in verse 11, Jesus says, truly, truly, the old King James, verily, verily. It it transliterates an Aramaic word that is amen, amen. And we have that word in our language. It comes from an Aramaic word meaning to confirm something. So when you say amen, what you are saying even today in English is, I agree with you. Yes, what you said is true. And Jesus uses it here for added significance to call attention to what follows. As Leon Morris explains, it marks the words as uttered before God who is thus invited to bring them to pass. And what Jesus is trying to impress on Nicodemus is this. Nicodemus, you don't need a little further instruction in your religion. You need, Nicodemus, to be born again. And that means you need to see yourself as a sinner who needs more than moral or religious improvement. You need nothing less, Nicodemus, than new life from God. Now Jesus will go on, in effect, down in verses 14, 15, and 16 to say, Nicodemus, you need me as more than a religious teacher. You need to see me as your Savior who, like that serpent that was lifted up on the stake in in old Israel, the Son of Man will be lifted up to die for sinners on the cross. Um, But Leon Morris again just nails it when he says, In one sentence, Jesus sweeps away all that Nicodemus stood for and demands that he be remade by the power of God. Now, the word born again, the word translated born again, is 
an ambiguous word in Greek, probably deliberately so. It can mean born a second time again, and it also can mean born from above. And it probably means uh, both. William Barclay gets both meanings. He translates, you need to be reborn from above. And uh, that is the idea. But just as we were born physically, Jesus is saying, we all need a spiritual birth in order to be right with God. (coughs) And such a spiritual birth is not a human thing. It is a birth by the Holy Spirit, as we will see. It is a birth that the Holy Spirit accomplishes. Now, Nicodemus, remember, was a Jew. And what were the Jews proud of? Their birth. I was born a Jew. Paul says that of himself. Remember, born of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, a Jew of the Jews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, as to the law and so on. You know, he was proud of his birth. He wasn't born like a Gentile dog. In fact, some of the Jewish rabbis even said, you know, thank God I was not born a woman or a, or a Gentile. You know, talk about arrogance. And so here's this Jew, proud of his birth, and Jesus says, your birth is worthless when it comes to God, Nicodemus. You need another birth. You need a spiritual birth, a birth from above to become a child of God. Now, in verse 3, Jesus says, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. And it's interesting that verse 3 and verse 5 are really the only verses in the Gospel of John that talk about the kingdom of God. Jesus mentions it offhandedly to Pilate in chapter 18 when he says, my kingdom is not of this world. But other than that, it's not a theme in John, although it's a major theme in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, But Ed Bloom explains, he says, The kingdom is the sphere or realm of God's authority and blessing, which is now invisible, but will be manifested on earth. And when Jesus says to see the kingdom in verse 3, and then in verse 5 to enter the kingdom, I take it they're roughly equivalent, with maybe the slight difference, to see the kingdom implies spiritual perception. The natural man cannot see or understand the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. And so to have the perception, to understand the rule of God, his eternal kingdom, Nicodemus needed this new birth. Um, Donald Carson in his commentary says, To a Jew with the background and convictions of Nicodemus, To see the kingdom of God was to participate in the kingdom at the end of the age and to experience eternal resurrection life. To be a proper subject in the kingdom, of course, you have to be subject to the king. You have to yield your life to the king. And that begins right now when you come to meet Christ. It continues, of course, throughout eternity. But here's a problem. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They cannot subject themselves to God. And I'm not making that up. They are hostile to God. Paul explains in Romans 6, 6 through 8, he says, the mindset on the flesh, he's referring to unbelievers, is death. But the mind 
set on the Spirit, that's believers, is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. And then he adds, for it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And Calvin infers in our text here that since our whole nature needs the new birth, there is nothing in us that is not sinful before God brings this new birth into our life because the corruption that we inherit from Adam has spread through our whole being. And that's why all the religion in the world cannot reconcile a sinner to God. He doesn't have the equipment. He, he is spiritually dead, incapacitated, alienated from God, and he's following a religion that is based on human works in which people take pride in those works, saying, I'm a good person because I follow my religion, and therefore I have something to commend myself to God, and Jesus is saying, that doesn't cut it. That doesn't cut it. You need the new birth. And so to be subject to the king, we have to experience this new birth from God, and that enables us to obey God from the heart, not just externally. So we need this radical transformation, not just some behavior modification. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean, oh, well, now I'm going to resolve to be more moral. You will be more moral. But it's because God has changed your heart. And... You need to, re, to be reborn from above. Now, Nicodemus is amazed at Jesus' teaching, verse 7. It's a radical statement. And so he replies in verse 4, How can a man be born when he's old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Now, it's kind of difficult to understand exactly what does he mean by that question. Um, he didn't mean, obviously, that Jesus was suggesting another physical birth. Nicodemus was an educated man. He knew that. John MacArthur thinks that Nicodemus was really saying, I can't start all over. It's too late. I've gone too far in my religious system to start over. There's no hope for me if I must begin from the beginning. And he says that Jesus was demanding of Nicodemus that he forsake everything he stood for, and Nicodemus knew that. Um, he may be correct. I think D.A. Carson might be a little more on target when he suggests Nicodemus was just kind of blown away and didn't understand at all what Jesus was talking about, as reflected by his amazement in verse 7 at Jesus' words that he be born again. He's bewildered, in other words, by what Jesus is saying. And so Carson says that Nicodemus's answer in verse 4 reflects an incredulousness that prompts him to kind of answer with a crass, literalistic view that is um, expressing a degree of scorn toward Jesus. R.C. Sproul goes a little farther and suggests that Nicodemus was really insulting Jesus by his reply. Sproul says, what are you talking about? These are Nicodemus's words. Are you suggesting that a man has to enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born? What a ridiculous idea that is. So Sproul takes it as Nicodemus countering Jesus and uh, disputing what he has to say. 
So in verse 5, Jesus explains verse 3 further. That's the point of verse 5. He's, he's elaborating on verse 3. And he says that spiritual rebirth requires cleansing from sin and new life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse, let me read verses 5 through 7 again. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, the phrase, born of water and the Spirit, has sparked all sorts of uh, um, controversy and question among commentators as to what it means. I used to think, and this is one view, I used to think that it just referred the water to, to physical birth and then being born of the Spirit to spiritual birth so that Jesus is responding to Nicodemus's comment about being born physically and saying, Nicodemus, you not only need to be born physically but spiritually. And in that case, water would have um, represented uh, natural birth. The problem is, probably Nicodemus would not have associated water with that. And a second problem is, the Greek construction here looks at one birth, not two separate births, by water and the Spirit. Um, whenever you mention water, there's a group of Christians that immediately jump to baptism. And so there are a bunch of commentators who say, well, this refers to Christian baptism. A minute's thought will reflect why that is wrong. Christian baptism did not exist when Jesus talked to Nicodemus. That was further down the line. And so Nicodemus would not have associated that with something that didn't even exist. And Jesus is trying to clarify for him what the new birth is. And also, if you teach that when you sprinkle water on a, on a baby... That baby gets regenerated, and there are Christian denominations that teach that. That is the very point that Jesus is refuting in this text, and that is that external religion can save you. That's totally opposite to what he is saying here. And so it's not baptism. Now some say in the context that it refers to the baptism of John the Baptist, which we saw in chapter 1. And I'll grant that's a possible interpretation if it refers to the significance of John's baptism, not to the rite itself. In other words, John baptized um, people who repented of sin in their hearts. And so Jesus might be saying <clears throat> that the new birth is a matter of repentance and the Holy Spirit then imparting new life. To you, And remember John said Jesus, the Messiah, would baptize both with water and with the Holy Spirit. Um, but it just seems to me, in considering that view, that's too subtle again. I don't think John, or, I mean uh, Nicodemus, would have connected the dots. There are others who argue that water represents the Word of God, because in many places in the New Testament... Uh, the water stands for the Word, the washing of water with the Word, and so on. Again, I don't think Nicodemus would have understood it that way. Others say that water is a symbol here for the Holy Spirit. 
And uh, so they mean the same thing. That's the view of John Calvin. Um, He says, By water, therefore, is meant nothing more than the inward purification and invigoration which is produced by the Holy Spirit. And in Greek, the word chi and can be translated that is. So Calvin would translate verse 5, Unless one is born of water, that is of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Um, Again, that may be correct, but I think this is the correct view. And that is, Jesus is reproaching Nicodemus later in the interview here because he doesn't understand these things. You know, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Jesus asked in verse 10. That's a clue to say this teaching comes right out of the Old Testament. And there is a text in the Old Testament that connects the water with the new birth. And that is Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27, which almost all commentators refer to the New Covenant era. God says this, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, meaning a living heart, a heart that is warm and responsive to God. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So Ezekiel is predicting a time when... God would cleanse his people of their sins and give them this new heart or this new spirit, placing his Holy Spirit within them so that now they walk in obedience to his word. Well, when was that fulfilled? It was fulfilled when Jesus was lifted up on the cross to die for our sins, when he was resurrected from the dead, when he promised, I will send the Holy Spirit, wait in Jerusalem till the Spirit comes on you. And the the Holy Spirit came on the early church, and now on all who believe in Jesus. And so Nicodemus, I think, who knew the Old Testament well as a Pharisee, should have connected that prophecy in Ezekiel with Jesus' words in verse 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is saying there is this fundamental divide between the physical And the spiritual, that which is born of the flesh, that's flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And you need the spiritual birth. To be born as a Jew, Nicodemus, doesn't cut it. That's just physical. Um, Put it in our terms. Some of you, as I was, are born into a Christian family. That's a great blessing. But you won't go to heaven because you were born into a Christian family. You need a new birth from God. You need to be born again through the Holy Spirit. And D.A. Carson puts it this way. What is in view is a new nature, not turning over a new leaf. So you don't just need to resolve, I'm going to be a better person. No, you need a new birth from the Holy Spirit. Now, physical birth, of course, happens at a point in time. So does a spiritual birth. Anybody here remember your physical birth? I've actually met some people who said they could remember it. I'm going, yeah, right. <clears throat> this guy needs to be locked up somewhere. 
but um, no, we don't remember it. And even so, I think many do not know exactly when they came to the spiritual birth, but there are signs of new life that make it indistinct or make it very distinguishable that you can say, I know that I have been born again. Um, you have faith in Christ and His promise to save for one thing. Uh, unbelievers do not believe that Jesus can save them from sin. Uh, you have a new love for God and a desire for the things of God. You want to seek first His kingdom and righteousness. You have a heart that is thankful to God for all that He's done for you in Christ. Uh, you have a hunger to know God through His Word. Like newborn babes, you long for the pure milk of the Word that you might grow in respect to salvation. Uh, you have a love for God's people. You want to be around His people and be built together with them into a spiritual house uh, in the Holy Spirit. You have a mourning and hatred for sin that you didn't used to have. And I mean your own sin, not the sins of your mate or your kids. You begin to hate your own sin. You say, oh God, deliver me from my anger and greed and lust and pride and all of these things that uh, bring me down. And so you have a desire for holiness. And all of these new desires come from the new nature that God plants in you when you were born again. And it's not that you'll never again desire to sin because I believe there is still that old nature or the flesh that wars against the Spirit, Galatians 5. But you have this new desire. I want to be like Jesus. And so you begin to fight against the flesh and to live in the Spirit. That's the new birth. We'll look more at it uh, next time as we uh, keep exploring this text. But let me just close with this story. Many years ago, there was a, an Anglican bishop named John Taylor Smith. He was a former chaplain general in the British Army. And he was preaching one time in a large cathedral on the subject that I've been preaching on, the new birth. And uh, in the course of his message, he said, um, My dear people, you don't need... Uh, or, or he says, my dear people, do not substitute anything for the new birth. He said, you may be a member of the church, even the Church of England. But he said, church membership is not the new birth. And my text says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then there was the rector of the cathedral sitting uh, on one side of him, and he pointed to the rector and he said, you may be a rector like uh, my friend here and not be born again. And my text says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. On the other side sat the archdeacon, one of the higher-ups in the Church of England, and he pointed to him and he said, you may be like my friend the archdeacon here and not be born again. And my text says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He said, you may even be a bishop as I am. And that doesn't matter because my text says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, he finished his message, went his way, and several days later, he received a letter from the archdeacon. And it read in part, My dear bishop, you have found me out. I have been a clergyman for over 30 years, but I have never known anything of the joy 
that Christians speak of. I could never understand it. But when you pointed at me and said that a person could be an archdeacon and not be born again, I understood what the trouble was. Would you please come and talk with me? And of course, Bishop Smith did go and talk with him, and that archdeacon responded to Christ's call to salvation. He was born again. So let me ask you this morning, what about you? You may be religious. You may hold office in the church. You may have been in the church all of your life. Have you been born again? Have you experienced that new life that comes from the Holy Spirit who changes your desires, your heart, and makes you a child of God through faith in Christ? Cry out to God and ask Him for the new birth if you've never experienced it. Without it, you will not see the kingdom of God. Dear Father, you know every heart here. I sure don't. I don't even know my own heart all the time. And Dear Father in heaven, I pray that you would be merciful to everyone hearing my voice, that none <clears throat> would be deceived by their own religiosity to think that that's going to gain them standing with you on Judgment Day, but that each of us would not rest content until we know that your Spirit has done a work of grace in granting us the new birth from death to life, that we are new creatures in Christ, that we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that we see the marks of the new birth in our life, and we are assured that we are your children because you have done that work of grace in our hearts. So I pray that for each person here and ask that you would grant it for Jesus' sake.